0: All right. It's not good when people in the congregation start pointing to their watch and saying, come on. Let's. So I want, I want to invite you to just, um, just set aside time for a moment. Today in Next week, I want to invite you to set aside the way you've been discipled. The way most of us have been discipled. I'm not talking about our faith in Christ. but I'm talking about the way we've allowed the world around us to disciple us. The way we've allowed media of all forms, politics, um, economics, um, The world's definition of the good life, power, all those things. We've all been discipled by those things in seeing the world. And I just want to invite you to try to come as open as you can to what God might want to say to us. Never before has there been a time in my life and my ministry ever where I have felt the need for the church to really hear Jesus and to live out Jesus. I said last week that we made a turn last week on the bench. We. We began with those first three weeks kind of talking about our hearts, and we talked about that inward curve, and then we said there's some really good news, the power of God for salvation that can, that can reverse the curve inward and turn it outward, and I said last week, you know, we're going to take a turn now, we're going to turn in direction, the conversation is going to change on the bench, and last week we asked the question, who is allowed to sit on my bench? I got a great text from my brother Bruce this week. It was just the other day. It was just so great. It was bench. (laughs) And it was a picture of a bench in downtown Nashville. And he said, every time I see a bench, I am never going to think the same. I hope I've messed up your idea of benches the rest of your life. But then, you know, Bruce, I noticed the subtitle underneath it, right? And it said, what you see as a bench may be someone's bed. I wanna talk about how we look at people. When I planned this series of sermons, this sermon was already set in stone before November 7th. And that's the date of the Hamas terrorist attack. So I think this is a timely word that maybe the Lord wanted for us, that he was setting in place for some reason. But before we get there, I just here's the repeat button. Let me hit repeat. Let's look at these scriptures together. Go ahead, put that first slide up there, Joe. Would you say these words with me? Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. And then these words from James chapter 1. Let's say them together. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Next slide. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We said last week when we looked at those words, we're going to like live with them a little bit for three weeks. And we said last week that there's three things that these words, these two passages of Scripture speak to us about. They speak to us, first of all, of embracing that almost nearly extinct, and if this week's proved anything, that nearly extinct virtue of humility. And now the world needs humility. Secondly, this comes with a decision. These words, when we look at them, they, they, they invite us to a decision, an intentional decision, to come with a non-defensive posture, to not come defensive, or, as John Eldridge says, to not come with the offended self. Thirdly, this text refers to listening. Both of these texts refer to listening, but what they're really referring to is they're really referring to actually seeing people. But here's the problem. We live in a world where we are encouraged to and we often have a difficulty seeing people. We actually live in a world where it's very quick to, where we're very quick to unsee people. The cultural norm makes acceptable tearing down others to make my point, to have my way, or to gain my power. To dehumanize others is promoted and it's rewarded, whether at the polls or with social media likes. A person becomes an issue or a cultural identity, or a media-crafted political opponent, or a fabricated enemy, and now what happens is they're no longer human in our eyes. We can now distance ourselves from their humanity because, after all, they're just an issue. But that's not new with humanity. And it's not new with Jesus. So I welcome you to the bench this morning. He said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raca, Is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you hear a little squeaking in the back, that's my granddaughter Eloyn, who when she hears my voice, we have a conversation. (laughs) So if you hear a little squeaking, she's just talking to me, and you can tune her out. So but you see what Jesus does here? He's talking about a downward descent into the hell of contempt through dehumanization. It happens to the heart, but it happens slowly. A heart that hardens itself against another or a group of others. And in the greatest sermon of all time, Jesus says, beware of the fire of hell. I think he's saying that there's a process that leads to spiritual death for the one who dehumanizes another. You may not pull the trigger, I may not pull the trigger, I may not hit the button to launch the missile. But what I turn the other person into or the other group into determines whether or not I'm found guilty of murder. That's what Jesus is saying. Our attitude, our looks, our words reveal a desire just to get rid of somebody. Don't want anything to do with them. Anybody who stands in our way But you see, within every human being, there's something that recoils at the idea of treating others in a way less than human. There's something inside all of us that recoils at the thought of treating others like objects or animals or property. There's some inhibition within us. But you see, when we, when we set up an enemy image... Or we label others in less than human terms, treating people less humanely is an easier leap that we can excuse. Because after all, they're that thing. And we lose those inhibitions. Dehumanization subverts the God-given inhibition and recognition of who we actually are. Dehumanizing others subverts what we instinctively, intrinsically, spiritually already know, which is this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. We quote those words, we hear those words, we think about those words, but here's a question. What happens when we become functional atheists at the point of those words? When we become functioning atheists at this point, we give excuses to exclude, to marginalize, to hate, and to even kill. When we label the immigrant as an animal or the politician as a pig or the homeless as a problem in any other way that we say they're less than. You know, that actually says very little about them, but it says a whole lot about who we are. And what we are where no one else can see. But here's the problem. Who I am where no one else can see eventually comes out. And that can be dangerous. In an article, Dehumanizing Always Starts With Language, Brene Brown wrote this. During the Holocaust... Nazis described Jews as untermenschen, subhuman. They called Jews rats and depicted them as disease carrying rodents in everything from military pamphlets to children's books. Hutus in Rwanda, involved in the Rwanda genocide, called Tutsis cockroaches. Indigenous people are often referred to as savages. Serbs call Bosnians aliens. Slave owners throughout history considered slaves subhuman animals or property. They were no longer human. And when we target people because of political ideology or gender or skin color or ethnicity or national origin or sexuality or religion or age or socioeconomic conditions or housing status, when we when we just slot them into those preconceived labels we have it becomes easier to attack them at least it's easier for me to attack them but this is also true like on the on the street level of where you and I walk every day it would do you well to read conservative columnist David Brooks' article on how America became mean. Google that. He answers the question, why have Americans become so mean? He, he then recounts stories like these. I was recently talking with a restaurant owner who said that he has to eject a customer from his restaurant for rude or cruel behavior once a week, something that never used to happen. A head nurse at a hospital told me that many of her staff are leaving the profession because patients have become so abusive. At the far extreme of meanness, hate crimes rose to their highest level in 12 years. I remember riding my bike down Amherst Street one time, and I was just riding my bike, and I was there, and I was following the rules and the law, and this woman was turning into the same lane I was. I was from her, and she slowed down, she rolled down her window, and let's just say that I'm bald, but her language fried a little more hair off my head, (laughs) right? And I was just riding my bike, and she was, I don't know what was happening with her world, but she was, whew. But then we cannot help but turn to the events across the globe, we can't. We have to let the scriptures speak to us. It is heart-wrenching to read the stories out of Israel and Gaza. The terrorist brutality inflicted by Hamas focuses brutality on Israeli kibbutz farms that were not part of the Israeli-occupied West Bank. What's interesting is, is the kibbutzim, that's plural for kibbutz, many of them, if not most of them, are interested in reconciliation. And then seeing an image, I saw this image of this block in Gaza that was just rubble from a missile. Violence in answer to violence in answer to violence. The results? Violence against God's prized creation. Image bearers. And it seems as a world we have crossed that line and we finally get to that German word that I Told you last week, and we are now gonna just think about for a moment, Schadenfreude. And if I'm saying that wrong, someone correct me, because I know my German grandmother, rest in peace, would come up to me in her four foot eleven stature and tell me. Schadenfreude. It means malicious joy. It means getting pleasure out of seeing another person suffer. That's what Schadenfreude is. It means rejoicing in another's pain, or failure, or defeat. And you see, here's the problem, and why I am stuck on this word, long before the sermon. This is where dehumanizing others ultimately lands. We gain a callousness to the suffering. Of others. We get callous. We we grow a callous on our hearts. How interesting it is that the Bible addresses Schadenfreude. In Proverbs 24, do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. Now don't think to yourself, well, you know, I'm not going to rejoice in them, then the Lord will take them out. It's not what the passage is saying. What the Bible is saying is, listen, you don't rejoice in the suffering of another and just leave them to God. Leave the issues in the people to the judgment of God. But I know this. You may be sitting there saying, oh, Pastor Jeff, you, you just don't realize how complex the world is. Oh, I do. <laughs> I realize this is really complex. I realize there is layers upon layers upon layers. And sometimes I'm very hesitant to insert my opinion because the layers are so deep. So I have to simplify. I need to, sim- I need to get down to the simplest equation. And as Christ followers, I think we need to do that to gain perspective. So I'd like you to meet someone today. Go ahead and put his picture up there. That's Elias Shakur. Elias Shakur is an Israeli citizen since the founding of the country in 1948. He describes himself, his description, as a Palestinian Arab Christian Israeli. (laughs) He's a priest. He's an educator. He's committed to reconciliation and peace. He built a school where over 10,000 children, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Druze children were brought together intentionally to educate them and help them to see a different way of seeing each other. He built libraries, community centers, youth clubs all across Israel's Galilee region with one hope, seeking reconciliation between Palestinians and Jews. If you want a book to read that will challenge maybe the way you see the world and that situation specifically, it did me when I read it many years ago. It's called Blood Brothers. Google that one too, Blood Brothers by Elias Shakur. But Father Shakur, in a number of different places, reduced all of this down to the simplest equation. He said this. We were not born Jew, Muslim, or Christian. We were born babies, like my little Elwyn back there. So everyone you see today think baby, created in the image of God. No more, but no less either. That doesn't mean I go up to Bob Whiffen and say, oh, you're such a baby, Not what we're talking about, all right? Not using it that way. We were born babies. So everyone you see today think, think baby. Created in the image of God. No more, but no less either. I don't know. I just think that in these very complex circumstances and situations, Grounds me to the one who made me and the one who desires justice and righteousness and holiness and goodness in the world is to reduce it down to that simple of an equation. So, where do we go? What do we do? How do we, as Pete Grigg says, how do we earth these big ideas in our lives? Well, we started on this bench with these words. Let's say them together. Next slide, please. Guard your heart more than anything else because the source of your life flows from it. See, we need to face these things, not to be informed, but to be formed, to be shaped, as my friend Bill Amelot would say, to be shaped in a way to make more room for God to expand our hearts in likeness. And we need to recognize the ultimate root of all of what I've spoken about today, which is the self-referenced life, the self-preferred life, the self-centered life on an individual scale and on a global scale. John Eldridge points out that social media is a breeding ground for malignant feelings. He also points out that our politics are ruled by self-interest and most of the self-interest Groups want to control people like you and me towards their position. Our culture is characterized by the offended self. We're trained to wake up in the morning and be offended at the person who cuts us off on the road or is going too slow. You never know what you're going to see when you slow down. I jumped off exit five several years ago. I was driving down the road, and this woman from Massachusetts was in front of me. I remember distinctly, I said, there's that woman from Massachusetts, she's really slow. And I was going really slow, and she's right there, and she had a smaller car, I had my Honda Element, so I was sitting a little higher. And I'm going, will you get with the program? I know you never do any of that. And all of a sudden, see this horse. I'm over by the Nashville police station. You know where that might be. And there's this horse breaking out of jail or something coming across the street. It cuts in front of her. But then I look and I realize that I could see the belly of the horse at the top of her roof line. And I'm going, that's not a horse. That's a moose. You need to know I've lived in New Hampshire for almost 21 years. And that's the only time I've seen a moose coming out of jail from police station exit (laughs) five. So you never know what you see when you slow down. And maybe we just see people. You see, the solution does not start out there somewhere with trying to fix that big problem. Though that's a big problem. And it needs to be addressed. And really, as Christians, we need to root ourselves in what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's the family resemblance, by the way, according to Jesus. The solution doesn't start out there, but it begins within me. It begins within us as a people. And you know, as the pastor or one of the pastors of this congregation, I can't tell you that it begins with the church down the street. I can't tell you that it begins at Crossway or Gate City or First Church, but I can tell you that it needs to begin with community chapel. As a member and participant in this church family. Because you see, I believe these days are a distinct, once again, opportunity for the people of God. So I have to ask, how am I complicit in schadenfreude? How am I glad when other people fail? What does my language say about the way I view other people? What mental images do I adopt about those who are different from me or oppose me? What does my social media use and presence and participation reveal about how I value others? How do I represent the other person in the conversation, especially when they're not there? I have to work on that. Anyone else? I mean, I know I do. And do I give, do I give a cent to the dehumanization of others by my silence. These words are important for us. If our faith asks us to find the face of God in everyone we meet, and it does, that should include those with whom we most violently disagree. When we desecrate their divinity, we desecrate our own, and we betray our humanity. You see, what happens is when I make that person less than human, I become less than human. When I don't look at them as one in the image of God, I am forfeiting a piece of the image of God in me. Or at least I'm I'm, I'm numbing it. We have to look at this. Completely unrelated to this, I was on a website this week, looking, it was actually a website on spiritual direction, and and this came across. Without self-awareness, there can be no humility. Without humility, there can be no listening. Without listening, there can be no understanding. Without understanding, there can be no compassion. Without compassion, there can be no love. And without love, we're lost. Without love, we're lost. So we come back to the answer we discovered a few weeks ago on the inward curve. The answer is, as Augustine said, humans were created in love and for love. So we're lovers first and thinkers second. The answer is still love. And I know there's arguments about there about the movement of kindness and how there's things wrong with that or you know we got you know love is we're too squishy and all that i'm not talking about a soft and squishy love i don't want a squishy love you know that squishy love that always feels good and nice and is always always you know warm and fuzzy i don't know i don't think there's much warm and fuzzy about the cross of jesus but it was the embodiment of love. I'm talking about the challenging love that drives us to seek to be different than a world that has made dehumanizing others a spectator sport. Whether it's online or in print or on cable news or in the grocery line. You know, a love your enemies kind of love? I mean, what was Jesus thinking when he said that in the Sermon on the Mount? Love your enemies. I think people want to say, Jesus, are you being for real here? At least in our world, we act like that sometimes, even in the church, right? We've got to be honest about that. But a love that's resolved to actually see people as God sees them. But where does that start? You're already saying about it today. We did together. In 1 John 3, 1, it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. John Eldridge writes, the way you treat your heart is the way you'll end up treating everyone else's heart. The way you treat your heart when you walk away from the bench in your time with God, in your life with God, is the way you're going to treat everyone else. And it starts, it starts here knowing we are loved, and then loving because we know that. A strong love, a courageous love, a a resolute love, a resilient love that's not based on the whims of my emotions or based on me getting what I prefer or want. It's not based on whether those I want in power are in power or whether or not it's all working out the way I want it to work out, but a resolve to love like Jesus, that kind of love, that's that's not a squishy love. A love that's willing to figure out how to even bring reconciliation to a place like the Middle East. There's no secret ingredient here. There's, n- there's no secret ingredient. There's no like big grand peace process that man is going to fabricate that's going to make it all work. It's been tried repeatedly. Does it mean we don't keep trying? Of course we keep trying. There's no silver bullet. The truth and the power of love which is seeking the highest and best good for another at the expense of personal sacrifice. I think about Jesus, and the Bible says that he loved us when we were his enemies. So how do we find assurance of our faith when we swim in the cultural waters of schadenfreude? When we are immersed in the flood of dehumanization. First John four seventeen goes on and says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. You see, this asks me who or what has been discipling me? And what are they discipling me to? Because what, The scripture saying is, if you want confidence, if you want to know how complete you are in Jesus, ask yourself, how much am I living like Jesus? Am I being like Jesus in the world? So we must fully and constantly trust Jesus. We must allow the love of Jesus to seep into our souls and we must seek to love what he loves and who he loves. We must desire and seek and live the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus when it comes to this? Some of the hardest words in all the Bible. Some of the most difficult words are the way of Jesus. Go ahead and put them up there, Joe. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love never fails. If you want to hear a great sermon on First Corinthians 13, go back in our archives this summer when Alex Pittman, who's with us today, preached a message on First Corinthians 13 that was awesome. Those are hard words. But that's the way of Jesus. That's not easy. The Bible tells us it's not easy. Paul writes this in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends, look at the disclaimers. I mean, Paul's Paul's writing. He's going, you know, if it's possible, I don't know if it's possible, but if it's possible. This is how I read Paul on this. I read Paul going, well, you know, if it's possible. You know, as much as within you lies, I mean, there's a lot of things out of your control, but whatever's within your control, as much as within you lies, live at peace with everyone. He's saying, you know, it's not hard, but you need to find a way to bring the shalom of God. It's not easy, but it is necessary. But here's the really good news, and I'm going to wrap up. Dr. Ken Collins said, God's grace works in us to rectify our love, stabilize our affections, and empower us with new desires that come from God. We can't do this on our own. We need God. We need the love of Jesus. We need his salvation to alter and change us. And the good news, remember, in Romans 1.16 from two weeks ago, the power of God, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. And this is good news about Jesus transforming our lives with his grace that help us see how human we all are. Because after all, we were all born babies in the image of God. I'm going to make a change here, James. James. I love singing with you, but we're not going to sing. We're just going to pray one of the most famous prayers in its original form, and then we're going to be dismissed. Okay? Let's stand together. This is the most, um, considered the most accurate translations, or one of them, of the actual prayer of Francis of Assisi. So I invite you to pray this prayer with me today, and this will be our benediction as we receive the word of the Lord today. Let us pray. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Where there is offense, let me bring pardon. Where there is doubt, let me bring faith. Where there is despair, let me bring hope. Where there is darkness, let me bring light. Where there is sadness, let me bring joy. O divine master, let me not as much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that I receive, it is in pardoning that I am pardoned, and it is in dying that I am born to eternal life. May we now go in the name of Jesus and may we be the answer to the world outside these doors because we know we're loved by the one who gave everything for us. May we love because we know we're loved. In Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.